Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Composer Michael Gatanska is my guest today. Tending towards writing for large ensembles, Michael has written a number of works for symphony orchestra. His orchestral music has been performed by the Minnesota Orchestra, the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra, the Krakow Radio Symphony, and many other ensembles worldwide. And in 2012, he was awarded the American Prize for his orchestral piece, The Whispering Wind. Recently, his work has evolved to include recording nature soundscapes. His creativity does not stop with music. Michael also creates vivid and colorful paintings and drawings. And sometimes, combining the two practices, he has made some really wonderfully beautiful and mysterious graphic musical scores. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thank you. It's great to be here, to be a part of this. I always like here at the top of the show to kind of go back and get a bit of background. And uh, I was reading that you spent some years splitting your time between New York City and Poland, where you were studying with the legendary composer Krzysztof Penderecki. That piqued my interest, as you might imagine, and uh, I was hoping that you might talk a little bit about that experience. Well, when I finished my undergraduate, I, I just have to backpedal a little bit. Sure. Um, I had, uh, had very uh, little experience uh, composing music. And um, I became interested in it my last uh, year uh, during undergraduate and um, decided that uh, I would try um, and enroll in a summer course at Indiana University um, that was actually a very dynamic program. It was for composers, student composers. I was 21 um, years old. And, but there were a lot of people there um, from John Eaton, Paul Lansky, Harvey Solberger, uh, you know, Roger Reynolds, John Hardison. So there are some, you know, really big uh, composers that were a part of that. So um, I didn't really um, know of any of these people uh, at that time. So the only name I did recognize was through my, you know, theory class was Milton Babbitt. And so, you know, having a couple lessons with him was a, you know, we had nothing in common. Um, other than, you know, our discussions of beer. But, um, you know, but it was great to, uh, you know, actually sit down with all of these other people and, um, you know, uh, get feedback on, you know, um, be able to study their scores and get feedback from them on, you know, what at that time, you know, my, my music was very immature. Um, but one of them asked me, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to go and study with, you know, Penderecki in Poland. I'm, I don't want to say his name, but he said, well, you're not ready for that. So as soon as I came back east after the program was done, um, I wrote Penderecki a letter and asked him if I could be a student. <laughs> wow. So um, that's how it started. Um, and then, yeah, as soon as I heard that, you know, that it was okay, I headed off to Europe. So he returned your letter, and that's how you made establish contact. Uh, I wrote the letter to uh, the Academy of Music there, and then I followed up. I called the Academy of Music, and they gave me his phone number. Okay. Um, so, but you know, this was you know, um, and 
1990, so things were a little different then. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned um, that you're—I'm sorry, just one quick question. You, you mentioned your undergraduate, uh, towards the end of your undergraduate degree. What, what were you studying before you switched over to composition? Well, I was, uh, I, I was a music major, but it was mostly theory. Oh, okay. Um, and, yeah, there was no composer, uh, you know, on the faculty there. And what happened was um, I had become interested in composing just through, you know, my music theory studies. And, you know, um, uh, eventually uh, I ended up through the school worked with, uh, was an assistant for a conductor. It was like, a, you know, an apprenticeship program. Okay. And that conductor, it was in New York City, and he was conducting two orchestras at that time. And so it's my job to just, um, you know, to put the bowings in the music, make sure the music was on the music stands and everything like that. But, you know, uh, I remember going to that first rehearsal, which was at the old Carroll Studios, you know, which is on Ninth Avenue at that. And, you know, it was a tiny space, and I just remember sitting right next to the concertmaster. And as soon as the orchestra started playing, I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to write for the orchestra. And so I, I pursued it from then on. Great. And so what was it like uh, being in Poland in the early 90s? Things had not completely transitioned over. Uh, to So in other words, there, it was a time when uh, in Krakow, for example, everything in Krakow, like it was all Polish restaurants, Polish bookshops, uh, antique shops, um, you know, um, before globalization. So at that time, you'd go and you'd buy your dairy products at the dairy store. You'd buy your vegetables at the vegetable store. And you never knew, uh, you know, when there would be a holiday. They had holidays all the time, and that meant the stores were closed, and I didn't have a refrigerator. So, you know, there were times when I would go out because you have to buy your food every day, and I'd have just a cucumber and half an onion. So, uh, because <laughs> wow. it would be, you know, yeah, because it was all this old communist, um, you know, all these festivals and vacations and holidays and things like that. But it was a great time. It was very exciting. And... Through um, Penderecki, um, I also studied with two other uh, terrific composers, two other great teachers, uh, Zbigniew Bujarski and Marek Stachowski. At that time, too, I was also able to, um, I just uh, had called up uh, Ludoswowski. Uh, so I managed to have a couple of lessons with, uh, with Ludoswowski, which was, uh, I mean, it was just um, one of those things in a composer's life that you would never forget. So, yeah, I mean, it was uh, a great time in in terms of studying music. You could just, you know, call up Guretsky and, you know, go to uh, Katowice and meet him, you know. Uh, so it was a great time for me as a student, too. Yeah, it must have been just so amazing. Well, um, I wonder if uh, you could talk a bit, a bit about what kind of things you studied with with those composers and and sort of how their perspective perhaps changed your perspective on, on writing orchestral music or writing music in general? What was great about studying with the three is they all brought different things to the lessons. You know, uh, with Penderecki, um, at that time I was very interested in, you know, the whole um, movement of sonorism, which he had already moved beyond. Um, he had, you know, gone back to the, uh, the that, you know, those European you know, structural uh, forms. 
but he was uh, probably, I think, one of the best orchestration. I mean, he's a master of orchestration. So I, I learned a tremendous amount of orchestration from him. And then with the other, uh, Bujarski, he's, uh, I think, one of the more original, um, you know, Central European composers. So harmony for me, um, I, I gleaned a lot of things regarding harmony from him. But uh, why I was going back and forth from Poland and there was because I had to apply for the scholarships to be able to study in Poland, and usually there was a, a you know, um, a window of time, a year window of time before I could do that. I see. So I was studying at Manhattan School of Music with Elias Tannenbaum, and the great thing about that was that it always opened my eyes to um, to what was going on um, outside of Europe. So he was always telling me things like, "Oh, come on, you have all this, you know, uh, this big cloud of you know noise. Uh, what about rhythm? I mean, in America, we work with rhythms, you know." Yeah. So it really opened me up to like, even though I didn't realize it at the time it was a great um, way to study i can listen to your music and and hear that you know that you have this uh sort of fully realized authentic voice you know your music doesn't sound really like anybody else's music but i'm sort of curious about the what point you feel you felt like you had a musical identity separate from these experiences of these you know very influential and and famous uh, composers and teachers that you worked with at what point did you feel like you broke away from that and, and you had your own sort of voice and, and things to say. I had finished my study in Europe and I came back and um, because all of that music that I had written, it was just basically copying the style. There was nothing, you know, original or unique about it. It was nothing about me in that music. And um, the first thing I did was I traveled for a couple of months across country and I was just camping and hiking and through that, contact, especially with Native American culture, uh, made me realize there's a lot more out there that um, I'm interested in that I can, you know, draw from as, you know, uh, to incorporate into my music. So the first piece that um, I think was a result from that was The Whispering Wind. In order to get away from the whole European uh, uh, way of thought, um, as far as composing, I began looking at uh, things that weren't even necessarily um, musicians. So I was reading um, Marshall McLuhan, Buckminster Fuller, looking for uh, ideas to help me build up a philosophy for, for you know, uh, how I would approach composition. Well, I've always felt, uh, and I've mentioned this on the, even on the show here, um, I've always felt a st- almost a stronger resonance with some other uh, some other arts than I do with with other musicians, certainly. Um, for me, it's it's words and poetry. That's really where the connection is for me. Um, and I felt a real resonance with that. And I, you know, consequently doing a lot of pieces uh, with spoken texts and, and working with poets to collaborate pieces. And I think that's, for me, where I sort of broke away from from the idea of strictly just composing music, that, that there was something else that that I needed to resonate with in order to, to make things. And so it sounds like for you, part of that was uh, getting in touch with these other, these writers and philosophers, and, uh, but also this other cultural uh, music or, or way of being in the world, the Native American uh, music and, and philosophy that you mentioned. I uh, spent a lot of time out in New Mexico in the Pueblos, 
my doctoral research was all on the composer Peter Garland, who had spent a lot of time living in Native American villages in Mexico, and he had lived in New Mexico around the Pueblo cultures. And uh, so I, I'm somewhat familiar with a lot of that, uh, the practices of like powwow drumming, for instance, and some of the other uh, dances like the deer dance and the matachin dances. Where, uh, what cultures uh, piqued your interest or, or did you find resonance with, uh, like where were you doing your camping and what, like what, uh, what group were you, um, investigating? Well, uh, it was, I mean, you know, it's at Canyonlands, uh, you know, the, uh, Mesa Verde, Grand Canyon. Uh, and I've done that trip, uh, three times. Um, but when I came back actually to Connecticut, um, after after those experiences, I reached out to uh, the Mohegan tribe here, and so um, I went and did some uh, drumming with them. And that actually there is a segment in the Whispering Wind that I tried to uh, you know bring that or imitate that. Great. Well, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit. So you've mentioned this piece a couple of times. Uh, maybe we can sort of look at this piece, The Whispering Wind, as kind of a window into how you like to work in your, your creative process or your compositional process, what you were thinking about as you composed and sort of what was your creative method for making, for making this piece. Right. I think at that time, again, um, what I was, I think, trying to do uh, in opposition to what I had done as a student and had studied and learned as a student was I was looking for something uh, that reflected a type of music that had would have swift impact uh, that would sort of almost be crude in some certain sense, um, but had it, the end result would, uh, on the listener, have a sort of direct and real experience. And so I wanted to do that by creating um, a sort of constant movement of new sound environments. And so what I found that when I was composing that piece was that because of that approach, it was giving me multiple um, exponents for, uh, for, you know, exploration as a composer. It's sort of like, you know, Debussy's Sonata for Flute, Viola, and Harp. Um, you know, that's the music of continual change, really and it's very fluid. You have all these different subjects that will flow to the surface, you know, at, at different times in that piece. And so I was thinking along those lines. But okay. also, in when I mentioned the other, uh, you know, writers like Buckminster Fuller, I mean, when they talk about technology, they're talking about, you know, technology has moved us to the kind of invisible. It's like a wireless, our whole, you know, patterns of social interdependence or change. And so I wanted to approach music that way. And so that's what I tried to do in, in, in this piece, The Whispering Wind.
the other thing that I did was, and this was my first kind of experiment with this, was I actually, uh, in, on one of my hikes, tried to map out, um, you know, the sort of increase and decrease in uh, the sound of wind through the trees. And so I thought I could use that as a kind of uh, model um, for that. So I was exploring a bunch of different things in that piece. So just sort of the unpredictable uh, chance, sort of we could say even an aleatoric sort of idea that you, the, the, the form of uh, a length of time, say, that you're hiking and how the wind peaks or, or blows uh, to a certain degree gave you the contour of the piece that you were writing? Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Uh, yeah, in certain parts it did. Wow. Uh, and uh, so that was my, you know, at that time I didn't realize it, but what I was doing was, you know, using amplitude mapping as a, you know, as a source to create musical form rather than referring back to like the ox cart forms like the sonata. This was something that I was pulling, I mean, directly from nature itself to try to use. Wow, I, I don't think I've ever heard of uh, I don't think I've ever heard of that process before. Is this something that you um, sort of developed on your on your own, or did you have you heard of other uh, composers using this idea? I, I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> I, I mean, it seems um, it's distinct from the you know like what John Cage was doing. It's distinct from that. You know, it's not it's not exactly the same idea. Um, Certainly, like, I'm thinking also of Cage's, you know, visual arts, like, we're tracing stones, you know, so you're using a stone to give you, uh, you know, the stone tracing, and I suppose there are other arts that have done those types of things, but I can't think of any, I can't think of any other composers who have taken a sort of a natural model, like, well, I, I suppose, you know, John Luther Adams did something with, like, weather patterns, where he sort of recorded seismic data and weather system patterns. I don't know exactly, can't articulate that for you, but and he used that to trigger some sounds and things in an installation piece, but that's a whole different deal. What we're talking about here is you're, you're taking a, a chunk of time and, and measuring wind current or wind speed or something like that and, and making that the form to give you contrast in the piece or form to the piece. That's, that's a really unique idea. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what John had done, but yeah, I mean, the, the, I don't know if it's crude or, or, or not, but I mean, I mean, again, the, the basic uh, idea was to use this natural map creating intensities or, you know, the recession of those in intensities is really following uh, a, a natural you know, structural thing, uh, rather than a prescribed form. And all of the soundscapes that I've, you know, done, they all, you know, they're all, they're all different maps. Right, right. That That's fascinating, Michael. That, that's really interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, like, a day-to-day -day sort of creative process. And I, and I realize that probably every piece is different, uh, and we could even use this piece, The Whispering Wind, as an example, but I'm always curious about how artists work, and and as a composer myself, I'm interested to know how other composers uh, sort of approach their their projects. So, are you uh, are you the type that likes to get in the studio and and chip away at something daily, or do you work you know long hours at one time, or sort of what's your 
kind of creative process, if you could generally say, or, or maybe to a specific piece? In the past, because of my situation, um, what I, you know, I was, you know, going, doing a day job and then coming home and trying to compose. And then what I uh, decided to try was to wake up very early. Uh, and instead, you know, uh, compose for a few hours, go to my day job. And so I ended up, uh, uh, I began waking up at 4.30. And what I discovered was that that was actually a very good time for me. And I do this every day. Uh, but waking up at that time for me is, is when the subconscious is the most active. And I found that um, that for me is probably the most interesting way to compose. And because I do it every day, you know, all the things that I'm composing, it's kind of sitting in the in the brain and, you know, working itself out. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, that's how I work. And sometimes, uh, you know, it, I can work from, you know, 4.30 until uh, 9, or I can work from 4.30 until 3.30 in the afternoon. It just depends on, you know, what it is coming, uh, you know, uh, off the pencil and, um, you know, as long as my subconscious is not, you know, um, totally distressed, you know, sometimes I can have a, you know, a good, good run. Yeah. And do you always work with, uh, pencil and paper? I, I noticed I've seen some photographs like on your website and there you are at your table, you know, with a, a huge score and a pencil. Is that how you like to work mostly, or do you ever, I mean, do you use the computer at all to compose, or what's your sort of... No, no yeah, no, I mean, I just, uh, I, I have to daily, and, you know, so usually I write the scores first, and then I, I put it in there, but I found that the music software is such a limitation to, uh, and, and this refers back to, like, when I was in Poland. I mean, I was doing these graphic scores, I mean, there was, like, no limit to, you know, what you could create. Uh, and here I am with this, you know, music software, which is, it reminds me of, like, almost like NASA. You know, they're launching, you know, this um, this space shuttle in the play, into space, and it, they're landing it like an airplane, you know? Yeah. It's like trying to do something forward-looking with these old technologies. Yeah. And that's kind of like what the Sibelius does. It doesn't... Uh, offer me, you know, any new uh, way to notate music. It's just telling me to do it the same way it's always been done. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for me, it's just kind of boring. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that uh, I like the pencil, and I love working on, you know, these large uh, pieces of, you know, sheets of music paper. I mean, I feel really comfortable in that space. That's why I think I've written, you know, so many orchestral pieces. I, I just feel comfortable in that world. And the other thing, too, that relates back to my, you know, Southwest experience, and like, for example, the Pueblos was like uh, the sand painting. Oh, yeah. And what I like to do, too, is I, I live in a big, you know, open uh, space, so I like to take those sheets, uh, those large sheets, and spread them across the floor, uh, because, um, and sometimes I'll even get on the floor and work there, and that's no different than, for example, what the sand painters do. Uh, so I don't think there's anything odd about it. By laying all that paper out, I get a, a, a big view of what's happening with my piece. I think Morton Feldman used to do that, too. He didn't do it on the floor, but he would tape up all of his uh, pieces onto the wall. And it gives you a really good 
sort of real projection of what's going on with your piece over time and visually. So uh, maybe we could transition now and um, talk about some of this um, field recording work that you've been doing. How did you get interested yeah. in field recordings and making these uh, what you call eco-ear soundscapes? You know, when I would go hiking, I think I've always, probably in almost a lot of the things in my life, I've always tried to, if I have an interest in something, I try to take it to another higher level. And so, like, when I was out, and I'd be out in the woods, and I'm like, what kind of tree is that? I would have no idea. So I began, you know, studying trees. So now I can go out into the woods, and I can differentiate, you know, between a red uh, maple, a black maple, a white maple. Uh, but then, you know, because I have an interest in sound, um, I began to think about, well, um, well, like, for example, with the Whispering Wind, that was a really, you know, probably a crude attempt at, you know, trying to um, incorporate the deep listening experience into the comp my compositional act. So anyway, um, I think how I got interested in doing the recordings was it became... Uh, an idea of mine that each leaf, if given the same wind conditions, would sound differently because of its physical, uh, you know, their physical differences. And so I began, like, recording these, uh, specifically trees. And I don't know if anybody has done that, um, but what I have found is that when I have, uh, one of my recordings compares a, a white pine with a red pine. And uh, when I uh, ha have played that piece to, for example, uh, people's, people who are uh, members of, like, the Native Tree Society, um, they, they were completely amazed by it. And these are people that deal with trees every day. <laughs> you know, they're scientists and they're, you know, up in the doing research in the canopy and the, the rainforest in Columbia and things like that. That's how I think my interest in trees, for example got me interested in, you know, uh, the sound of trees, and then what does each tree sound like? And following that, I began incorporating those soundscapes into my acoustic compositions. Right. and so there it's been is... a kind of process, you know. Yeah, yeah. So there was a piece that uh, I noticed on your YouTube page. The one that, that I want to talk about, uh, John, is uh, I have one It's for uh, a cello quartet, the piece is called Denise Hemlock Tabernacles. Okay. Uh, and it's with um, a pre-recorded soundscape that I did of hemlock trees. Okay. Um, and the reason I want to talk about that one is because there were two reasons uh, why I wanted to do this piece. Uh, one was that my sort of personal, well, I would say one of the things I wanted to try to do was to see if I could the cello quartet to sound similar to what was happening in the soundscape. So it was kind of an orchestra, uh, orchestrational uh, kind of experiment. So they're doing all kinds of things that, you know, would create sort of wind effects almost. Thank you. 
but there was another, uh, aside from the musical um, aspect of it, the other reason I wanted to do that was because um, the Eastern Hemlock has been um, decimated by an invasive species from Japan. And so, like, for example, in the Blue Ridge National uh, Park, those were some of the oldest and tallest hemlock trees uh, in the United States, and they're all dead. So this thing, this insect, has been spreading up the East Coast, and pretty soon we won't have any hemlock trees left anymore. So it was also kind of to raise awareness about that. So there were, yeah, two uh, aspects to, to why I wrote that piece. The other um, piece that kind of uh, in- piqued my interest also is I have a um, trumpet and percussion duo with my wife, Amanda Pepping. And uh, so I noticed you have a piece for trumpet, bass drum, and ping pong balls called Backbeats. Yeah. Well, that was um, <laughs> when I was in high school. I had a opportunity because we had a really mediocre arts program when I was in high school. But because of my grades, I was um, able to take uh, a music class at Wesleyan University for and earn college credit before I went to school. Mm-hmm. And through that, uh, I met Alvin Lucier, who was uh, there. And I was like a 17-year-old kid. And this guy just blew me away. Um, and so I have one piano piece, which is kind of a, an homage to him. The piece, uh, you have to uh, call it, it's an option, but you, you put, place a bass drum over the strings of the piano. Oh, is this sh- shaking, sounds, shaking of the pumpkin? Is that the one? Yes, that's it, shaking of the pumpkin. So the sounds of the uh, piano like go into the bass drum. The bass drum acts as a kind of filter, and those uh, sounds are amplified. And that ah. comes, you know, that's influenced from Lucier absolutely. Uh, but that piece for uh, trumpet and bass drum with the ping pong balls is that the trumpet player is uh, facing the bass drum. The bass drum is like elevated on a couple of chairs, and the trumpet is either moving left, uh, center, or to the right, and it's using um, acoustics, but also when it's playing directly into the bass drum, on the other side, our tap, uh, I have on a string taped ping pong balls. And so they're touching the, the membrane of the drum, and they, you know, depending on the uh, level of what the trumpet is doing, they'll bounce. Yeah, when it meets, when it hits the like resonant frequency with the bass drum, so you have to tune the bass drum to a certain pitch or something, and and then it resonates with the pitch of the trumpet. Is that the idea? Yeah. Well, yeah. Actually, I, we didn't tune it. I, I found that tuning it higher worked really cool. Yeah. <laughs> worked great. So I, we didn't do it to a specific pitch, but. Yeah. Yeah, that that was the that that that's what that piece is all about. Hi, everyone. Sorry to interrupt the show. I just wanted to drop in and ask that uh, if you are listening on iTunes, please do me a favor. Go back and leave a rating or a review. It helps people find and follow the show. Thanks. 
Okay, we're going to move on now and talk a little bit about some other projects that you have going on. Um, you shared with me a sample of a book that uses a writing uh, style or technique called asemic writing, and this was a complete blind spot for me. I had not heard of this at all, and as I suspect, m most people listening may not have heard of it either. And after you sent me those uh, samples, I, I went straight to the computer and looked it up because I was just totally fascinated. And down the rabbit hole, uh, I went and uh, just, you know, found all of the links on the, it was a Wikipedia article on Asemic writing, and I followed, you know, the links to some of the names that were mentioned and just found it to be totally fascinating and a mysterious kind of art. So maybe you could describe for all of us what asemic writing means for you, uh, sort of uh, maybe a quick definition of it, and then sort of how you discovered it, and then maybe your approach and what you're doing with it. Well, actually, John, the same exact thing happened to me. Is that as soon as I had heard of it and had seen some of the samples, I just sort of Googled it, and I was just like, this has been going on for ages. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I first came to, well, I guess a lot, as far as the Wikipedia definition is concerned, it's, uh, it means basically a wordless or open semantic form of writing. Uh, so there's really no content to it, um, and it just, um, when I first saw it, what attracted me to it was the, the visual um, uh, aspect of it. And so, um, I began, I was like, oh, let me try this. Uh, and so I had a, um, a calligraphy pen with some ink that my, I had gotten for Christmas when I was a kid. As a matter of fact, ink is so old, it says made in West Germany on it. <laughs> and <Wow. laughs> so I was like, let me try this. And I, I, I began uh, doing it. And then I found that that actually, this is kind of interesting for me because uh, there's a real continuum between, um, you know, legible writing, between writing uh, something that has no uh, value to it whatsoever, and then incorporating abstract images, recognizable images. I mean, uh, there's just no rules to it. And so the trick... Uh, for me, was to just turn it into something that um, uh, might be visually, uh, might have a, a kind of impact. And then I began thinking that uh, for a couple of the pieces that I have done, I was like, wow, I mean, I think these could really pair with, for example, uh, you know, any kind of like utopian painting or surrealistic painting as a kind of, you know, text that would go along with that, you know, uh, visual work. And so I started doing these on a, well, I guess it's fairly large scale. They're, they're like 18 by 24, which is, is, is pretty big. Um, but to make that whole um, ascetic page work uh, visually is, is uh, I find it related to composition in some way, because you have that big piece of music paper in front of you with nothing on it, and you have to find your way through that space, you know? And yeah. so I think that's one of the attractions to it for me. For me, it's uh, other than for me, it's very relaxing to create things like that. You know, I, I can start at a certain time at night when I come home from work and I'm tired, and all of a sudden, four hours later, have 
you know, gone in like two minutes. You know what I mean? So, yes, I, I know exactly what you mean. And, and if I could kind of describe uh, these, the images that you sent me, so this 18 by 24 uh, si- uh, inch size paper, and uh, the writing is sort of, uh, it looks kind of like cursive, and then throughout the um, throughout this sort of nonsensical text, which is just cursive loops and writing that if if uh, if it was sort of out of focus, you would think it was actual, uh, you would think they were actually looking at words, but as it comes into focus, it's just clearly nothing. <laughs> it's just scribbles. And then there are little trees that you've drawn, uh, some of which has the same sort of scribbling, but in the shape of a, of a tree. And then there are uh, different splotches of color throughout. It's absolutely fascinating. And uh, I, so you said you were creating a book, so you're making a whole book of this kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, well, the thing is, what I try, well, I mean, when you're talking about the images, that's what I was sort of mentioning, is that with this, there's a, this you're, I'm putting together this kind of continuum of these images, like, for example, the trees. We, we know what those are. Right. Then there's some images that we don't know what they are. There's this writing which... Um, I mean, we don't know what that is. And then from time to time, there is some legible stuff. And so what I'm doing for each page uh, uh, of this project is with the legible writing, I'm using, for example, uh, N-J-V-A. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But I'm using that as one of the things that will, uh, you know, uh, bring all the all the pages together. I and, see. Uh, okay. as, yeah. So uh, anyway, um, this is something that I just started, and I'm like now on the, the beginning, the fourth uh, page of, of this. But I don't know. I, it's just at this time in my life, uh, something that for me is just very interesting, and I feel like uh, exploring it to whatever level I can take it to. Yeah. I want to ask how you would want someone to respond to this. Are you creating it simply as a piece of visual art that one would look at? Or do you feel like it could be interpreted as a, a translated into text by a poet or a writer could look at your artwork and actually write uh, some sort of creative response uh, or a, as a musical score? Or, you know, how do you conceive of this kind of work? What uh, I have been considering now is works for uh, voice and works for, you know, multiple voices. Thinking that they can, well, I mean, you know, this is in a very, you know, primitive, uh, you know, conceptual state of conceptualization, but Mm -hmm. uh, thinking that, you know, they can uh, uh, use the Islamics in a kind of, way to create a, uh, let's say, for example, a vocal piece. I would have to give them rules or some guidelines which they can follow because, I mean, one thing that I learned when I was younger was that, you know, you can get a bunch of guys together and play free jazz, and it sucks. But if you get a bunch of guys together and you play free jazz and you're like, let's just play the note C and G, you know, then cool things happen. So you got to give some kind of rules. You yeah, know? limitations breed so, creativity. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, you know, so this is kind of something, you know, brand new to me. And so I'm not sure just at this point where uh, where it's going to be going. 
Yeah. But uh, absolutely, uh, I think in my life anyway, all of these things kind of begin dovetailing into uh, my, you know, my variety of interests. Uh, when I came across this, um, you know, one thing was that let me explore this and let me see if this is something that I can do to expand uh, my um, my arsenal of graphic uh, music um, possibilities. Well, thank you for introducing me to this um, to this uh, style of writing and this art that is Asemic writing. It's endlessly fascinating, and I hope to learn more about it. We talked earlier about your visual art, and you are uh, an accomplished painter as well. And I'm sort of curious to know two things. How did you get started with painting? And then I wonder if you find parallels between painting and composition? My mother is a painter, um, and so I don't know if that was something that got me interested in it, but I do know that it just working in that kind of visual world is something for me always just been uh, something that, uh, you know, relaxes me. Um, and I enjoy working with um, those materials and with color. I think with music, it's the thing that correlates to it is, again, um, you know, you have a blank, white, you know, piece of paper or canvas in front of you. Um, basically, you know, you have to start from somewhere and you have to fill that all out. And I think that's, for me, the way composing music sort of works. But also I think it's important that working with color really, um, you know, I don't think I see notes as color, but I see the way I orchestrate as color. So when I write a piece, I'm not, you know, writing uh, something that would be for piano and I then, you know, orchestrate it afterwards. I'm actually, you know, orchestrating it right away. I'm, you know, I'm sure, or I'm not sure, but maybe it all composers work this way or they don't. But I think that uh, in, especially working with, in painting or, you know, oil pastels or whatever, that those things, that I do see colors in the, even with a trumpet, for example. You know, if you play a, a low C or if you play a G or if you play a, a you know, your C above that, um, I see different colors there. And sure. I think not... For example, the, it's not the C, that low C that gives me a certain color. It's the, the quality of that tone. And so anyway, that, I think they, for me, uh, they all sort of work together. Like the piece that I'm working on right now, um, you know, when I have like the, the trumpet and the flute and, I, uh, and the harpsichord, for example, in one section, I'm thinking orchestrationally about a certain color that I want to produce. And so that color, I need to use a certain mute in the trumpet. I need to use a certain technique in the flute. And, of course, you know, I'm limited with the harpsichord. But orchestrationally, I have that color in mind. I can definitely see the, the parallels that you're talking about, especially with orchestral composition, where you're dealing with a large palette of colors. And maybe uh, I'm just... Uh, just sort of making an observation that maybe uh, 
the two work together for you so well because you are you do compose for these large forces in this large palette and then when you work with color you also have basically an unlimited palette of colors that you could choose from and so i could see the parallel uh you know from from the sort of the way that you work in in the orchestral format that you would be drawn to painting and color um it, would you would you recommend that like this is something that uh, young composers or students that of composition uh would should maybe study painting and study color as a way to uh think about musical timbre i'm not sure on that one John. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know what it is? It, it, what I've found in my life is that when I, when you have this, all, all these myriad interests, what happens is you, you, you get kind of lost, you know? Yeah, I know exactly and what you so, mean. <laughs> help me, help <laughs> me with that. Help me with that, Michael. I'm, I'm lost, man. So I, I, <laughs> yeah, my, my suggestion would be, I mean, if you're, a, you know, uh, a student composer and you uh, have, you know, this, uh, if you're acclimated to also visual art stuff, uh, and you know, I, I would explore it. For example, you know, when I was in Poland, uh, the composer I, I was studying with, Bujawski, he's also a painter, and he was probably more so than my mother, the one who got me into trying it, and I found that actually, I enjoyed it for many more reasons than just composing. Yeah. And then I learned after doing it for a while that actually this is teaching me things about composing. <laughs> but I think it would depend on the student yeah. and yeah, certainly. the choices that, you know, the, the, the student would, would, would make. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Well, it's funny that you mention that because I, you know, I, I often find myself more interested in these other arts than uh, sometimes than I am in music. You know, I, I really love poetry and I'm interested in, you know, painting and uh, and part of the, you know, part of the uh, reason to do this podcast was uh, so that I could be in touch with uh, lots of different kinds of artists and, and just be, I'm just interested in art, you know, of all different kinds. And, and I've tried to dabble here and there with other things, but I think you know, staying close to the the craft of music is really important if you're a composer. But yeah. in order to bring something else to the table, right, you have to diversify a bit your interests. You have to read good books. You have to look at interesting paintings. You know, you have to explore, like you said. Um, and so I, I think that's really important for, especially for musicians who can get trapped in a kind of you know, practice room, especially for performers, you know, we can get sort of trapped in our ideas of, of uh, technique and, and craft and being locked in a practice room and not being out in the world and experiencing things. You know, I, I have this uh, sort of saying of, you know, musicians, we have to be, uh, we have to do and we have to be, you know, we have to do all the things that that we have to do to be able to do our crap. We have to practice, you know, we have to do score study, we have to whatever, but then you also have to just be. You have to, like like you do, go out and listen to the wind. You know, you have to maybe explore painting if you're interested in that, or or work with color, or write a poem, or read a poem and read a good novel. You know, you have to do all those things, and then you know eventually those things 
show up in your work. They make their way into your creative work somehow, you know. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I do not want to be that guy who is going to write that C major triad and repeat it for three thousand measures. <laughs> yeah, I just I'm not going to do it. Yeah, and. As an artist, I, I'm always looking for things that I guess will exercise my mind, that will, uh, you know, buttress my exploration of, you know, my creative self. You know, I, I always want to be curious. I always want to be perceptive. You know, I, these things give uh, meaning to my life. And I, I think that that's, you know, really how I settle on the things that I, you know, do. But also, for example, going back to the aesthetics, I mean, this was something that I, all of a sudden, I just found by chance, tried and found to be um, uh, interesting for me, and I want to continue to explore it. So to what end can I take it, you know? Uh, and this is what I'm interested in. Very wise words. Um, we're just about uh, probably out of time here. At this point, I think we should probably wrap up our discussion, and I have often ended these discussions with asking uh, for advice. Maybe you have some guidance or wisdom or advice for, it could be uh, a young student that's out there that's listening to this show, or it could be an up-and-coming professional composer who's trying to, you know, make their make their career happen, Um or it could be just anyone involved with the in with a creative life. So, any advice or or uh, sort of wisdom that you have for making and sustaining a creative life? Oh, <laughs> that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, really, because you know, I, I'm not from the academic. Well, I mean, please, I'm I'm not teaching. You know. Yeah. And I know uh, actually more of. Like where my background was that as a composer, you know, you can learn, um, you know, all about, you know, Webern's, you know, Opus 21 or whatever, but they don't teach you anything about, uh, you know, the skills that you need, uh, you know, to make it for yourself. And what happens is that uh, now students are learning those skills over the compositional skills. So, you know, the self-marketing and all of that, they tend to do that pretty well. Whereas, you know, I'm generalizing. Like I said, because I don't have students, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what to really say because I've had so many different experiences that, I don't know, sometimes I sour on it. Yeah, I, um... You know, I said students, but it could just any, I mean, any sort of, um, it could be anyone, you know, I mean, certainly, uh, certainly we've all learned from other professionals, you know, that weren't our teachers, uh, learned important lessons. But I, right. I, I definitely have echoed this sentiment that you uh, mentioned about um, young, young folks, I sound like an old man, <laughs> youngsters out there, uh, but this sort of new generation of uh, performers and also composers that in the you know climate of commercialism or consumerism it, it's it's produced this idea that sort of uh, pop culture status or fame some sort of fame even if it's like internet fame are 
effective measurements of your success. And, you know, that's, we see that day in and day out. And, you know, a lot of musicians and, and even composers putting a lot of energy and imagination into selling virtuosity or, or uh, you know, selling their image at the expense of inventing and, and creating and, and stewing artistically, you know, and, and making something that's unique. It's, uh, I was, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch about this, and, and the, the, the punchline was, you know, 1% talent, 99% getting your name out there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think like any reality TV program will show you that talent, good taste, and confidence are not always, they don't always go together, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I, I've always, you know, I, and I've written about this too. Like I, I, one of my teachers, Alan Adi, would always say, you know, music at its essence is really about communication. And so I, you know, I think a better measure of success as a, a composer and, and, and then, at, you know, for me, who, who also is an interpreter and a composer, I think ultimately success is, am I communicating something? You know, um, I think music at its most fundamental is, is that. It's communication. It's a dialogue. It's a dialogue between the performer and the composer, but also between a performer and audience or a composer and audience. But you know, music has that potential, and, and perhaps at its most elemental, it is uh, just just simply that communication. Right. Well, I guess uh, if I were to give any advice, I would, you know, my advice would be to just write the notes that you feel are the ones that should be written down. Really, just have to follow. Um, that dictate. You can't be somebody that you're not, and if you're being somebody that you're not, then you're not being you. And, and you know, that's not, uh, I don't think, uh, what being a composer should be. Or at least, depending on the music you compose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very, very wise words, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this, and I, I'm I'm really looking forward to continue the conversation about some of this stuff. I, I'm real curious to see this book, the Asemic writing stuff, and how that develops for you. And uh... Thanks, John. It's great to talk to you. And um, like I said, I, I just appreciate uh, having the opportunity to have this conversation with you. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.